So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, if you'll remember, in the context, Jesus has just been warning the disciples about the dangers of wealth. The rich young ruler has walked away because the cost of discipleship was simply too high. Jesus had offered great rewards in the kingdom, and so Peter, oh, we love Peter, don't we? Because he always says what we probably would have been thinking in that moment, too. says, what about us, Lord? What rewards do we get? Because the disciples were the first to follow Jesus, and to that point, they had given up the most to follow Jesus. And so there was this air of superiority that infuses his question, this smug idea of entitlement, that if anyone was going to be the first in line to receive the kingdom rewards, it was going to be the disciples. At the end of verse 30, in verse 30, at the end of chapter 19, Jesus warns them that many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Now, what Jesus has been doing all throughout these last several chapters has been showing that in the kingdom, it's an upside-down kingdom, where the things that we might normally expect to work a particular way work completely different than what our expectations might have been. So when someone sins against you, rather than harboring bitterness against them or distancing yourself from them, you forgive them. When marriage gets hard and you want to escape, rather than filing for divorce, you press in to the grace of God that you might keep that covenant commitment. These young children who are brought to Jesus, who have nothing in their hands to offer, are welcomed eagerly by Jesus, and the powerful and the prosperous rich young ruler is sent away empty because he couldn't let go of what already filled his hands, those substitute saviors that he was clinging to. And so what Jesus is going to do is continue this theme of upending their expectations and redefining ultimately what greatness really looks like in the kingdom. And he does this, first of all, by telling them a story. It's a story, I believe, that gets to the root of Peter's question, what's in it for us? What are we going to get because of all that we've done and all that we've given up. Let me begin in Matthew chapter 20, verse one. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you, go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand idle here all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, then you go into the vineyard too. Let's pause there for a moment. I believe what Jesus is doing here as he tells this story is making a clear and simple point. That is, in the kingdom, it is not an economy of effort or earning but an economy of grace. You see, the disciples assumed that because of all that they had done and all they had given up, that they would be the first in line. And so he tells the story of a vineyard owner who goes to the marketplace early in the morning, around 6 a.m., to hire some day laborers. Now, these day laborers would have been very poor. Every day they would count on being hired by some farmer or worker that they could do some work, earn a small wage, and buy enough food for their family for that day. And so he goes and he finds apparently plenty of willing workers and he hires as many as he can to come into his vineyard to help pick the grapes that had now come ripe. And he agrees with them and they come to an agreement that he would pay them a denarius a day, which was apparently a normal day's wage. 
So there's an agreement, a commitment, and they go into the vineyard. But a few hours later, around 9 a.m. now, the, the owner of the vineyard goes back into the marketplace and he finds additional workers that are waiting and looking for work. And so he comes to an agreement with them that they would go into the vineyard and he would pay them what is right. He does the same thing around noon and then the same thing again around 3 p.m. to send more and more workers into his field to do the work. But then at 5 p.m., an hour before quitting time, the sun is sinking low on the horizon, the farmer goes back into the marketplace and surprisingly there are still workers who are waiting in the marketplace. And he asks them, why is it that you're standing here idle? And their answer is very simple, because no one has hired us. Now many people presume that because these workers were still there and had been waiting all day, that these were the least desirable workers. They were the lowest skilled people. And here there's only an hour left in the day. But this also suggests if they waited there in the market all day long, they were desperately in need. That their family still had to eat and they were willing to stay there until the sun had gone down on the hope that maybe someone would hire them and they would earn enough at least for their family to eat. And so they are called to go into the vineyard as well, and they work that final hour. And finally, at 6 p.m., the master tells his foreman in verse, 18, in verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now, the order here is important, because if the master paid the people who had been hired first, they wouldn't have thought anything of it. If they had received the denarius for their work, that was what they had agreed to. But instead, he chooses to pay those who have been hired last first. And notice what happens in verse 9. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius, a full day's wage for one hour of work. They must have been amazed and astonished and delighted. And I believe what we see here fundamentally in this story is the generosity of the master. You see, he knew that these workers, although they were only able to work for an hour in that day, had needs and families that still needed to eat. And so out of his great generosity, he gives them that full day's wage. Now look at verse 10. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive even more. But each of them also received a denarius. You see, as they watched these workers who had been hired and only worked for an hour receive a full day's wage, and we'd assume perhaps the others who worked only a part of the day also received the denarius, they thought, well, we were the ones who were hired first. We've worked the longest. We've given up the most. And yet they only receive a denarius. Now, be honest for a moment. That doesn't feel fair, does it? You'd be right there with them say, now, wait a minute. It's fine and well if you want to give them something extra, but we ought to get something extra Look at verse 11. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us. Oh, that's an important phrase. Who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. You see, they had felt a sense of superiority, a sense of entitlement based on the work they had done. And they said, look at all the work that we've done. Look at all that we've given up. We've worked through the heat of the day. We've done more than most. We deserve more than most. And it's that idea of deserving, that idea of earning that Jesus is going to narrow in on here in verse 13. But he replied to them, friend, 
I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? I haven't cheated you out of anything. All I've done is generously given to others based on their need. Verse 14, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. What I want you to see in this story is that the master does not relate to his workers based on their effort, but based on their need. They all shared the same need. And they all received the generosity of the master. That's what it says then in verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose, what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, if we are not careful, there is a danger that this idea of spiritual pride and smug superiority can creep into our lives. But what we need to remember as we begin in our passage this morning is that God does not relate to us based on our effort or our earning. Forgiveness and acceptance is solely by his grace. For the disciples, they assumed they'd be the first in line because they were first to follow. They were the ones who had given up the most. Let's think about what some of the things are that might be tempting us to develop a heart of spiritual pride. Maybe for you, it's your godly behavior. You look around at others who are making choices and you just shake your head that they would be so ungodly, so worldly, that they would compromise in those ways. But you are walking on the straight and narrow. You are are doing all the things and checking all the boxes as if God were impressed by your external appearance without looking at our heart. Secondly, maybe you take pride in your biblical knowledge. You know more than most. And when you sit down in a Bible study, you're the one who has the deep insights. You're the one that understands where the cross-references are, the theological principles that underlie. And so because of your education or experience or biblical knowledge, you begin to kind of puff up your heart and pride and say, I'm on a higher plane spiritually than most, and therefore I am deserving of God's attention and his reward. Third, maybe for you it's personal sacrifices. You think about all that you've given up to follow Jesus, And so you imagine that all these other people who are kind of apathetic, who who don't have to give up much, who are kind of just going through the motions, they'll be further down on the line, but you, you have sacrificed greatly, and so you're longing to be recognized and rewarded. For you, maybe it's your ability, your positions of authority. There's something that you've always excelled in, or you found yourself now in positions of leadership and influence, and without thinking, you begin to adopt that as your identity and the measure of your worth. But what Jesus is saying is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Every one of us, regardless of our ability, our position, our knowledge, our ability, or our performance, need his grace. And unless we start there, We are in great danger of treating the cross as if it were supplemental to our relationship to Christ rather than foundational. So Jesus is pointing the disciples to true greatness in verse 16. He says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. The principle here is that in the kingdom, everything that you expect is going to be different than what you expect. So even when we think of kind of final rewards when when we are welcomed into heaven, I am confident that those people who receive the highest honor and the greatest rewards will not necessarily be your Billy Grahams and your Charles Spurgeons. I think it'll be some of those prayer warriors who labored in secret, 
but prayed with sincere faith. I think it'll be some of those Sunday school teachers who invested for years in the youngest generation of the church and saw God train up and equip people to go into all the world as kingdom ambassadors. So let's be very careful that we reckon greatness the way Christ has, that it is through humility that we will honor Christ. Well, now in verse 17, Jesus is going to give the disciples a shocking prediction. This isn't the first time that he has predicted this. It's actually the third time, but it's the most explicit. Here's what he says in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. You see, Jesus knew full well what lay ahead of him in Jerusalem, but the disciples did not. The disciples, I believe, imagined that this was going to be the time of the coronation of the king. As we'll see next week, that as he rides into Jerusalem, that the crowds gather around and say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus wants to warn them that the king is going to come into Jerusalem, but he's going to reign from the cross, not from the throne. First of all, I want you to notice how explicit the perfect knowledge and sovereignty is of Christ. He doesn't just say, I'm going up to Jerusalem. He knows that the intensifying opposition is going to meet his perfect example, and it's going to result in the completion and culmination of his mission as he redeems us on the cross. He says he'll be accused by the scribes and Pharisees. He'll be condemned to death and delivered over to the Romans. He'll be mocked and flogged and crucified. But he will be raised on the third day. You see, when Jesus went to Jerusalem, he wasn't caught in some mob riot. This wasn't something that took God by surprise, but he takes all the free choices of these sinful humanity who are rebelling against God and weaves them into his perfect plan of redemption because he is sovereign and supreme. But secondly, I want you to notice the disciples' response, or I should say, lack of response. They don't say anything. Jesus has just unburdened his heart saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And the disciples are silent. I want you to notice how weighty and lonely the sorrows are that Jesus had to bear. We see that picture in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying and the disciples are sleeping. And he says, could you not pray with me even for one hour? Jesus has his face fixed on the cross. He knows the suffering that awaits them, him, and that's what he is predicting to the disciples. But now there is an interesting contrast, isn't there? Because every time that Jesus predicts his death in the book of Matthew, the disciples respond by jockeying for positions of power and prominence. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus says, I am going to the cross, Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus, no. No, Jesus, you get a crown, not a cross. Peter rebukes Jesus because of his prediction. In chapter 17, Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, and the disciples were greatly distressed momentarily. But then in chapter 18, they said, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Like, who gets to sit in the first chair? And Jesus brings a child and it's them and says, well, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to be like this little child. 
And now here, Jesus has just predicted his death in great detail. But the mother of James and John approaches him with her request, beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Isn't this fascinating? Jesus had predicted his death and humiliation. And the disciples are thinking, wait, you were saying something about thrones. Can, can we go back to that, Jesus? Let's go back to that part where you're ruling on the throne and we get to rule on the thrones. We want to talk about seating arrangements here, okay? Because the one who sits at the right is the most powerful and the one that sits at the left is the second most powerful for Jesus. We want you to do us a favor and put us in those positions. Remember, we were the ones at the transfiguration, Jesus. We were a part of the inner circle. We belong in the positions of power. You see, in spite of all that Christ has said about sacrifice and suffering and humility, they are still operating with a worldly paradigm of greatness and of power. And so the mother of James and John approaches Jesus and asks him for something, and Jesus says, what do you want? And I want to suggest to you that is such an important diagnostic question for every one of us. What is it that you are wanting? Because your desires drive your behavior. The things that you're doing are because of what it is that you are wanting. And Jesus is bringing them to a crossroads saying, are you serving my kingdom or yours? Are you following my desires or yours? Living for my pleasure or yours? Are you seeking to submit to my rule or assert yours? It's a question worth contemplating for us this morning. Because even if we go to church, even if we've been Christians for a long time, there is such a danger for us to want to climb up on the throne, to want to sit in the position of power for our desires to rule rather than submitting our desires to his ultimate rule. And so the question, what do you want, reveals our heart motive, whether we're serving self or seeking God. And so she asked this question, grant that my sons might sit one on your right hand and one on your left. I want my boys to be in the positions of power. Now, first of all, I want you to notice this is actually a question that reflects great faith. She believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the king. And there was a deep expectation that he was going to Jerusalem to set up his kingdom. And so her asking this says, I'm putting all my hope in the fact that you are the king that we've been waiting for. But not only is it a question that reflects great faith, it is also a question that reflects great presumption. That my boys ought to be first. That my boys ought to be the ones at the top, which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus was just trying to teach them. That the first would be last, and the last would be first. I love what Jesus says next. You do not know what you are asking. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't give you everything you ask for? Aren't you thankful that God knows better than us what it is that we need? Because you see, James and John's mother thought that what she was asking for were gilded thrones to the right and left of Jesus' kingdom. But Jesus knew that he was going up to Jerusalem and that he would be crowned as king. Crowns would be made, the crown he would wear would be made of twisted thorns. 
He would be publicly proclaimed, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Rather than being met by cries of applause and praise, he would be mocked and ridiculed. The ones to his right and his left would not be sitting on thrones. They would be nailed to a splintered beam. Rather than ruling in authority, they would be suffering in agony. Jesus says, you have the wrong paradigm. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? This image of the cup throughout the Old Testament has the idea of God giving us the portion that is due to us. On occasion, it refers to the cup of blessing, but many times it refers to the cup of suffering and of judgment. The cup that is filled with the holy anger of God, who is righteous and pure, and we, as sinful people, deserve it. You think of Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. As he stared down into the dregs of the sinfulness of humanity and the wrath of God that it rightly engenders, there was a terror and a foreboding that was there. And he drank that cup on the cross. He paid the full weight of God's wrath that we might be sheltered from it. So he says, are you able to drink from this cup that I'm about to drink of the holy wrath of God? And what did James and John say? No problem. We got it. Bring it on. I want you to notice how their brash arrogance results in overconfidence. They grossly overestimate their ability and grossly underestimate the cost but it's going to be revealed in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the soldiers come in to arrest Jesus and he is led away and the disciples flee, leaving their Savior all alone, the true state and depth of their commitment. And Jesus responds to them, you speak better than you know, for you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. James would be martyred. John would be exiled to the island of Patmos until an old age. Jesus knew that they would pay the price to be his disciples, but he says, it is not my prerogative to assign the positions at the right and the left. That is the prerogative of the Father. You are called simply to serve. Now in verse 24, the rest of the disciples hear what's going on. And they begin jockeying for positions of power. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Can you imagine Peter in this moment? I'm sorry, they said, what? Where is Jesus? Hold on. No, everybody knows I get to sit at his right. And they begin arguing and competing. After Jesus has just said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. They're positioning themselves in the places of honor. Wanting to be known as the best the first. So Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus is about to give a master class in greatness in the kingdom because they've completely got it backwards. They have a wrong idea of who the great ones are, the ones with power and position and authority. They have a misguided expectation as to who the little ones are, the, the weak the helpless, the children. 
So he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, that would be the Romans and some of the provincial leaders that ruled on their behalf, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Here he's giving the world's paradigm of power. So just as Jesus has given them a class on how we view our possessions or wealth, that we are not the owner, but rather we are the steward, entrusted by God with his resources to serve him on his behalf. He's going to give the same master class, but now on power and authority in the kingdom. He says that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And that's not used in the colloquial way that we might use in English, of lording it over them necessarily and being domineering, although it can certainly imply that. Here the idea is that they are actually operating as if they were the Lord, as if they were God, seeking to usurp God's rightful rule and authority and positioning themselves in the place of prominence. So you need to be impressed by my amazing clip art skills here. This is a picture here of what the world's paradigm might look like. For the world's pattern is one of self-importance, where we're grappling and jockeying for position that we might have power. And once we have that power, then we get to act as if we were God. That, that we're the leader up here and the others are down here. And now I get to assert my will. I get to require others to follow my desires. And I can sacrifice others in order to serve myself. What Jesus is saying is that their mentality reflected the Romans far more than they would like to admit, which must have just grated against them because they hated the Romans. They constantly resented the fact that the Romans would assert their rule in a domineering and merciless way. But Jesus is trying to say, not only are these people using authority in wrong ways, but they're thinking about it in wrong ways. They are thinking that they themselves are the sovereign rather than the servant. They position themselves as a place of ruler rather than as a redeemed slave. And so he's going to tell us that it must not be so among you. And I want to suggest that much of what Jesus is teaching up to this point can be kind of put under this general heading. It should not be so among you. You see the way the world resolves conflict bickering and fighting, harboring bitterness and anger, but it's not to be so among you. You are to extend forgiveness. You've seen the way the world throws away marriage as if it were a disposable contract, but it is not to be so among you for marriages to be an unconditional covenant. You've seen the way the world sends children away empty because they have nothing to offer, but it's not to be that way among you. You are to welcome the weary, the weak, and the humble. You've seen the, world, the way the world caters to those who are in positions of power, but it's not to be so among you, for their hearts are so ensnared with idolatry that they are blinded to the reality of their need. He says, if you would be great in the kingdom, whoever would be great in the kingdom must be your servant, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now, permit me just a brief excursus here because I want to unpack what this means in the bigger context of biblical theology related to what it means to be a leader in God's kingdom. Because what we are lacking in the world's paradigm is all we're thinking about is the horizontal axis, that I have authority and they don't. I'm the ruler and they aren't. 
But what we are missing is the fact that we are not the sovereign, but we are the servant. Yes, we may be in authority, but ultimately we are under authority. And if we ought to understand greatness in God's kingdom, we must first of all rightly understand the greatness of our king. For we are under his rule. We are called and commissioned by his grace. And we are ultimately accountable to him for the ways that we carry it out. The Bible describes us as being a slave of Christ. That we are redeemed by his grace. We are called to do his will live to please him in every respect and be dependent on him for everything he calls us to do. And so that means, yes, you may be in authority, but you are ultimately under authority. You are not the ruler, you are the servant. You are not the shepherd, you are the under shepherd, and you are also one of the sheep. Over and over in the Bible, it says that leadership is stewardship. It is temporary, and you will be held accountable by the one master, the only king that reigns and rules in this kingdom. In order to do this, to serve in authority and under his authority, we must be rightly related to God. That is, we don't do things the way that we think they ought to be done. We don't pursue our desires, but rather we know God and we imitate his character as we then serve him and represent him toward the people that we serve. We're not domineering or lacking grace, but rather we are modeling the same compassion that Christ has shown to us. We are not living to please ourselves. We're living to please the master. We are living for an audience of one, working to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And in order to do that, we must deny ourselves in order to serve others. So what Jesus is going to say here is that if you want to be great, you must be a servant. If you want to be first, you must be the slave. That this is the horizontal outworking of the vertical relationship. That we lay down our rights, our desires, and our preferences that we might prioritize the needs of others and give of ourselves in order to meet them. In order to do this, we must be dependent on God. We are not autonomous. We are not independent as if we were the sovereign. We are submitted to his rule and dependent on his resources to carry out what he has called us to do. And therefore, we are obedient to God. We constantly have our eyes on him as master saying, God, in this position of influence that you have put me, how might I represent you? How can I serve you and how can I serve others? So whether your position of leadership is a prominent position that's written on your business card or whether your position of leadership is as a father, as a mother, as a friend, or as a mentor, God has put you in that position to be rightly related to him first and foremost and then rightly serving others in the same way that he has loved you. We can summarize it pretty simply. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That orients our service of others that we might love your neighbor as yourself. And this is so important in order to live our lives in ways that honor God. That if we say, first of all, I am a slave of Christ, accountable to him and dependent on him, and I am then a servant of others, here's what that allows us to conclude. That I am your servant 
you are not my master. I'm living for an audience of one. I am working to hear well done. And that means I will give of myself, I will sacrifice and I will serve in whatever I can, but the one I am ultimately serving is Christ as my master. So let's think about what that then looks like. We are called to humbly serve God by willingly serving others, living for God's approval by doing his will. Now you know the greatest test of whether or not you actually have the heart of a servant? It's when someone treats you like one. When someone gives you a position that you feel like is actually beneath you, or asks you to do a task that you say, I shouldn't have to do that. But whether it's you're picking up the trash, or changing the dirty diapers, or setting up chairs, or cleaning the grease trap in the kitchen, your work has value and significance, not because of the magnitude of the work, because of the majesty of the God whom you are serving. And that as you are serving others as a service to Christ, your worth has eternal value. So Jesus says, stop grabbing for positions of power and look for ways to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and serve others in their greatest needs. He then points us to his own example in verse 28. It says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If ever there was someone who had the right to assert his rights, to grip onto these entitlements and say, I shouldn't have to fill in the blank, it was Jesus. But he modeled humility, as Philippians 2 so clearly reminds us. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and ultimately going to the cross for our sake. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The picture here is that if a slave or a prisoner of war was imprisoned, someone had to pay the price that was sufficient for them to be set free. There is a sacrificial and a substitutionary nature of Christ's service. He laid down his rights and he laid down his life to take the penalty that you and I deserved. And because he died on the cross, we don't have to experience the wrath of God. We are reconciled to him because he was condemned by the Father, ultimately vindicated when he was resurrected from the dead. So Jesus is demonstrating for us that he is not calling us to ever give up anything more than he has already given up for our sake. But you see, what the disciples wanted was they wanted the crown without the cross. They wanted the glory without the suffering. And Jesus says, I want you to follow in my footsteps. And even as I will suffer and die for your sake, I call you to lay down your rights and lay down your life in service of me and it will not be wasted. For you will suffer for a little while, but the glory of God is what awaits. The passage concludes with a beautiful story that we would love to unpack more if we had more time, but, but it's a fitting conclusion here as Jesus has been talking about greatness in the kingdom. It says that Jesus was in Jericho, and a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out, cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
Jesus is now approaching Jerusalem. The Feast of Passover is likely just a few days away. He knows what awaits him there. And as he lifts his eyes to the Judean wilderness in the finally, final 15 miles of his journey, he looks at these chalky hills, and I have to imagine that his mind went to the 40 days that he spent there in the wilderness as Satan came and tempted him and said, Jesus, you can have the crown without the cross. But Jesus refused to compromise. He was resolute in his mission. And he was surrounded by pilgrims that were going up to celebrate the Passover, a time of great expectation that as they had been set free from Egypt during the feast of the Passover, that they were longing that the Messiah would come and once and for all set them free. We read that there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, poor beggars, helpless and hopeless, being pushed aside as the crowd pressed through, ignored and marginalized, because in those days, if someone was blind, it was assumed that it was God's punishment for sin, either their sin or their parents' sin. But as the crowd was pressing by, these two blind men heard that in that crowd was Jesus of Nazareth. They had heard stories of him, of how he had opened blind eyes and healed lame legs, how he had cast out demons and even raised people from the dead. And suddenly, in the darkness of their eyes, hope began to well within their hearts. And they cried out to him, Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. You see, what they lacked in eyesight, they made up for in insight. Because in the darkness of their eyes, they believed with all their heart that Jesus was their only hope. And so they cried out all they knew to cry out, and that was, Jesus, have mercy. We're in the darkness. We are helpless and hopeless, pushed aside and ignored. Would you take notice of us? Would you rescue us? And they used this phrase, son of David. This was a messianic title. They were declaring Jesus to be the Messiah, the deliverer that all of Israel had been longing for and waiting for. But the crowd was calloused. In verse 21, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they would not be silent. All they did was cry out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. See, the crowd viewed them as nothing more than people to be ignored and silenced but they would not be silenced because their only hope was in the Savior that they could not believe, see, but they believed with all their heart. And so louder and louder their praises rang out, their refrain, Lord, have mercy, was heard. Now I want you to notice the beginning of verse 32. Jesus stopped. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, intent on his mission of redemption and facing toward Jerusalem, heard the cry of mercy of two blind men, and he stopped. I want you to understand that is a profound truth, that when we cry out for mercy, God inclines his ear. Not because of our great worth, but because of our great need. God's word promises that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so he stops. And Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Do you recognize that question? Same thing he asked James and John's mother. 
their response is filled with humble and deep faith. Say, Lord, we want to see. Would you open our eyes? Would you bring us out of the darkness into the light? Would you take our hopeless condition and give us hope and life and light? You see, there is such deep anticipation and faith there. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus has been talking about greatness in the kingdom. That you think about who is first and last and you've got it all wrong. Here are two men that got it. That it wasn't about their spiritual resume. It wasn't about trying to get Jesus' attention by their position or their power. It was their cry of mercy that stopped Jesus in his tracks. And he reached out to them and rescued them and healed them and redeemed them. So maybe you're here this morning and you've always struggled with this sense of shame distance, that you have to get the right words or clean up your act in order for God to welcome you into his presence. Friends, that's a lie of Satan, trying to drive you away from the grace that God fully gives you and freely offers. He wants you to cry out for mercy, trusting that he can rescue you from the darkness. That when we cry out to mercy, for, to him for mercy, whether it's to, to have victory over sin to have forgiveness, to be set free from those feelings even of condemnation that we are struggling with. God hears and he answers. And as we close, without getting too metaphorical, I think it's worth it for us to recognize that the picture that we have here physically of Jesus healing these two blind men is almost identical to what Jesus does for us spiritually when we come to him in faith. Because we are blind. We are lost in the darkness. We are helpless and hopeless apart from Christ, unable to resolve our situation on our own. But God in his grace, when we cry out to mercy for him, for mercy, he opens our blind eyes. He takes us from the kingdom of darkness and brings us into the kingdom of his marvelous light. He welcomes us into his family and redeems us, not because of who we are, because of who He is. And as he gives us sight, he calls us to follow him. For these men, it would be to follow him into Jerusalem, a path of suffering that they could have never anticipated. For us, it's to follow him in obedience, dependence, and deep faith that we might know and trust him. So maybe you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Christ. Jesus welcomes you to call out to him for mercy. Not because you have all the answers, because you begin with the greatness of your need and the wonder of the greatness of his grace. But maybe you're someone here this morning and that smug superiority, that spiritual pride has begun to grip your heart. As we sing these final couple of songs in response to what we heard, would you confess that you are a sinner saved by grace, brought out of darkness into light, give him the praise that is due his name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the example of Jesus He humbles us, but he also instructs us as we follow in his footsteps. May we be those who are not just in authority, but under authority, deeply dependent on your spirit, deeply intent on living for your glory and not our own. God, forgive us for the ways in which we often act as if we were the master, as we seek our will rather than yours. God, I pray that you would draw our hearts back to yourself 
that we would even in these moments respond in wonder and worship. And that as we leave this place, we would go commissioned as your ambassadors to model your character for a lost and dark world so desperately in need of the hope that only you can provide. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.